0: Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle. Thank you so much for joining me. I am excited to uh, bring a guest to you today that I have followed for 15 years, maybe. Max Borders. Uh, I don't know how to describe his career. You know, he's somebody that I've followed uh, since he started a conference called Voice and Exit, which was about voicing your displeasure with the way things are working and checking out of the system. You know, he is an author of several books. Probably the biggest is The Social Singularity. He's written The Decentralist, After Collapse. And he's got a new book called Underthrow. And I love this book because it basically takes the spirit of the founders, specifically Thomas Jefferson, and applies them to the era of technological advancement that we live in. You know, people will often talk about, well, how do these the words of these dead founders who lived when it was horse and carriages and mail took 3 weeks to get to somebody uh, in another state uh, why what lessons do they have for us in the modern age and the book underthrow really talks about the application of jefferson's philosophy to the modern age and how people ought to be con- specifically the phrase consent of the governed and how we ought to build a new constitution Around consent of the governed and he's putting his money where his mouth is. He has a contest for $25,000 to write a brand new convert uh, $25,000 to write a brand new constitution based around the consent of the governed and adapting the US Constitution to the modern age so check it out. Max Borders is an incredibly fascinating guy. I really enjoyed our conversation so let's get to it right after these words. Max Borders, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure.
0: You know, I have followed your career. Uh, You know, one of my nerdy things that I like to do, back when I worked for the Advocates for Self-Government, I started doing this, even actually at the Libertarian Party of Indiana back in 2010, is uh, collecting lists of libertarian podcasts and libertarian websites and think tanks and... uh, you know, I just was looking at libertyexplained.com at that list, which are now woefully outdated because I've stopped following the libertarian movement in a lot of ways. Um, you know, but during that time, I, I came across your work. I think it was really voice and exit, which I guess you'd call a decentralization TED Talk. Uh, you can quibble <laughs> with that if you'd like, but I thought it was such a cool idea. And one thing that I've loved about your career is... Uh, that has been instructed for me is that you seem to have focused people like me who come from a political background focus a lot on politics. Uh, there are a lot of people who kind of focus on philosophy, right? Um, you always have... Guilty. Yeah, yeah you definitely are <laughs> in that vein. You know, like listening to your interview with Andrew Heaton and just reading the book, you definitely seem like a decentralization Madison. How can we... You're a nerd for different governing types, and it was fun listening to you two to talk about, well, you know, the Native Americans started the, and they had this, the. um, but you really seem to, I, I don't know, how would you describe your interest? It, decentralization seems to be very important, but you always have seemed to try to project towards the future of here's where we want to go. And I think one of the problems with uh, a lot of libertarian or right-leaning thinkers is we're thinking about the problems of the present based on our understanding of the past. So your, your tone and tact and, and focus, I think, has been really cool. So wh- where did that develop? Uh, first, quibble with anything that I just said. But from an outside perspective, that's sort of how I've always viewed what Max Borders does. What, how, where can we get to? Which I think is really cool
1: first of all, no quibbles, none at all. Um, I am old enough. You can see in the the, the salt <laughs> in my hair that I'm old enough to have come from a politics, policy and punditry background. Actually, I'm a trained philosopher. So the philosophy bit was dead on. I'm still a sucker for that. I always will be. It's, it's, it's woven into the fabric of my being. But I think the politics, policy and punditry thing, I did that. I did that for a long time. I worked in another a number of organizations on um, on those topics, and they tend to sort of constrain pe- constrain people's thinking. And and the 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 way I hoped to s- sort of reframe things with some of the projects I've worked on over the years is to get people interested in creativity, entrepreneurship, and innovation as a mechanism of social change. And I actually think that people of a libertarian sensibility are much better suited to that than traditional politics, not only because they tend to be uh, have engineer's brains, left-brained kind of folks, and that's not wholesale, but that is like the, the great preponderance of people in uh, who self-identify that way, I would say are um, are much better suited to entrepreneurship and innovation than perhaps then processes
0: versus art
1: (laughs) (laughs) well and and that that's unfortunate too i think um we need to be able to to have more creatives um more creative types who are right brain thinkers but um but yeah they're more interested in process they're more interested in in analysis and that only goes so far in policy analysis um but a lot of times i think what you get are people who have interesting ideas and innovations that push back against both the prevailing narratives and the status quo in interesting ways. And uh, I, while I definitely appreciate certain things about conservatism as a doctrine, that is, you don't want to change too many things too rapidly. You don't want to tear down Chesterton's fence. There's some, you know, it's like you have to acknowledge uh, progressive conservative you have to acknowledge the beauty and the, and the interesting facets of all of the different political movements. My hope is, and I believe as a liberal, and I just call myself a liberal, uh, sort of broadly speaking, um, with, you know, I have deep uh, libertarian sympathies. But um, broadly speaking, I think what liberalism brings to the table is this idea that we are trying to liberate you to experiment with different conceptions of the good that would involve self-selecting into specific kinds of communities. And those communities can look very different from one to the next. But as each individual explores their communities, they find which ones comport with their particular conceptions of the good. And that's just a fancy way of saying we're all different. And some of us are wired differently. Some of us come into the world differently. Um, and acknowledging that pluralism among people means l- maybe we're, we're kind of trapped in a system where we're trying to figure out what the one true way is and bludgeon everybody with it. And even libertarians can fall under that, that, that way of thinking sometimes. So what I try to do is say, look – Decentralization is a way of instantiating pluralism. It is a way for us to try out different ways of life, more and more l- high, highly local settings. Um, stop fixating so much on these, uh, you know, distant capitals and the spectacles of electoral politics, or trying to oblige someone in a bureaucracy to do something interesting and new that is going to run afoul of some special interest group, and instead. Let's start creating things that people can join in, join in and uh, make change that way. And of course, I started having that reinforced for me on about really heavily reinforced to me on about um, 2012 and 2013. And that's when Uber came out. Uber came out in 2012. And um, the Bitcoin white paper was written in, I think, 2009 And I had been exposed to the ideas of Bitcoin in 2011. So the long and short of it is, it's like, whoa, Bitcoin was Bitcoin and Uber and these different entrepreneurial projects, innovation projects, were a way that you could move the needle that circumvented the box of politics, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think... um you You scratch a lot of the itches that i'm I'm kind of thinking through and wading into. I've always been a very political person and um not as much a philosophical person so over the last year or two, I've really been trying to like catch up and 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 I just I was like, what is a liberal? what is a conservative and what are the histories of these terms and you know I've kind of been and thinking through some of that stuff and i've I've made it up to the American Revolution lately. Uh, so the title of your book is Underthrow, How Jefferson's Dangerous Idea Will Spark a New Revolution. And man, you just have written a book that I've been looking for because one of the currents, I think a lot of it may come from libertarians kind of maybe more coming from a conservative background. Ron Paul, I think has a lot to do with that. You, you are a libertarian, uh, at, at, you know, you call yourself a liberal, but in the libertarian vein, like I call myself a libertarian from the before times. Right Where people who were libertarians before Donald Trump have, I guess, a different sort of view of things than maybe post-Trump libertarians. Um, they seem the more populist veins seem to have a lot more distrust in their fellow man than uh, they may be a little more John Adams than the Jeffersonian libertarians, uh, where, look, it's the consent of the governed, and yes, we should be skeptical of democracy, but decentralization is key. I have always believe that um, we, that decentralization is the future. You talk a lot about pluralism, the idea that different cultures can and will live together and exist uh, in, in proximity, in online spaces, in different places, and you cannot eradicate that. I think that there are some folks who have not under uh, have not figured that out. Uh, we talk a lot about the culture wars, so this is the first question. I've got a lot of questions out of out of some of the that that thinking there. Um, the first question is the culture wars and how you sort of interpret the the culture wars, and you know, I'm sort of like I'm a Christian conservative leaning person who is deeply committed to liberalism and pluralism and democracy and capitalism and and kind of the the direction that you're moving with, with decentralization uh, and that it's not going to be all that horrifying if we can just kind of break out of some of these propaganda models that we're under. Uh, how do you interpret it? Do you look at it and just sort of go, well, I'm just checking out of this and let's focus on other things or... Do you say you know one side will inevitably win, so we ought to participate? How do you look at at the culture wars and these two sides that just keep bludgeoning each other in the press?
1: Let me let me answer that with a reference to another another book I wrote back in uh, 2017, published in 2018, called The Social Singularity. I opened that book with this this the following metaphor: It's like, uh, what if you woke up one morning? to check your smartphone. And most people do that in the morning now, because that's, that's the world we live in. You you open up, you open up your smartphone and you only find that there are two apps, the red app and the blue app. How would you feel about your smartphone at that point? You would feel pretty disappointed because uh, I mean, at least I would uh, because, um, and, and by the way, these two apps uh, fight over which one is going to be, you're going to be able to use for a certain time period for the operating system, right? Which I would call DOS, the Democratic Operating System. Uh, Okay. Outdated. (laughs) Outdated, that's right. So what we're living in now is DOS, the Democratic Operating System. And there are only two apps, and there are only two choices. And that duopoly of red versus blue, it creates massive incentives to tribalize around one side or or the other when um and what that does is it takes away from local experimentation i happened you know uh, i just moved away from austin to a much more conservative area i love where i'm living now it's beautiful and fun but um in living in austin it was a really heterodox community there's all sorts everything from progressives you know hippie types to um to techies, uh, you know, which which you might call the the, the gray minded, um, from um, Balaji Srinivasan, I think, taught me that, um, and uh, to to obviously conservatives and Christian conservatives in Austin as well, and that that heterodox community, um, when you really start talking to people and you start talking about their values, the things that they want, you realize that they engage. The, the way they think about their community locally is a far cry from the way they behave online when talking about the macro picture. This system of incentives kind of, it sort of forces us to want to, um, because we live in a system where the idea is if our team gets elected, we get to uh, we get to install them at the highest echelons of power, and we're going to get to our chosen way gets to be everyone's chosen way, shoved down everyone's throats. Decentralization, which is, uh, you know, I would say the mechanism, the the political mechanism for, uh, you know, which is, which is just breaking up power into smaller, more local units, so that people can more readily or more easily self-govern. What they instantiate more locally might not be what we're used to. They might be able to experiment with a little welfare state locally when people know their neighbors better. And that welfare state is administered in a way that's much more communitarian than it is now, whereas we just, for example, outsource our sense of responsibility for our our fellow man to distant capitals and expect that this largesse is going to be just sort of, you know, distributed from on high as if by algorithm. I mean, that's really what it seems like—faceless bureaucracies, just just cutting checks to people. It's almost like a vote a vote buying scheme.
0: Yeah, versus the township model here in Indiana, where you can go and help; they can help turn on your lights, buy your kid's school clothes, but they're going to come out and do an inspection, and they're going to turn down two thirds of the people because they could t- sell their TV, right? You know, versus Or whatever. Who? Yeah. What bureaucrat are you trying to convince that just doesn't care because they don't have to?
1: Right, and 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 you know, I think. The more abstracted away people uh, get from their governance, which is the electoral spectacle that happens every two or four years. Some people don't even do their, their midterm elections. They just care about the presidential because that is that gobbles up all of the real estate, all the media real estate, all of the, you know, the cult of the presidency and what and the the administration, presidential administration has so much power the executive branch has so much power now that the deep state is a very real thing. And we, I don't think anybody can deny that anymore. It used to be, you know, that you, they'd make fun of you if you said the deep state and today it's sort of like, yeah, that's the reality. Um, whereas if you had a model that was more like, let's say Sweden or Liechtenstein or a city state like Singapore, Singapore is very conservative in its orientation in terms of social freedoms. They will put you to death if you try to sell someone a certain amount of drugs. Um, I don't like that as a liberal. I I find that a little, you know, a little too excessive. Uh, But, but I think, you know, in terms of uh, as a local municipality, if I wanted to opt out of something like that, if you can reduce the cost of my exiting some jurisdiction that doesn't comport with my conception of the good, I can go live in another one that is a little more liberal in that regard. And um, then I'm not fighting with my neighbors in the next county over what gets to be shoved down everybody's throat at the state level or the national level. So, th- of course, the founders cottoned onto this very early on with the idea of the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, building in federalism. Um, I, I don't think they anticipated to what degree the Ninth and Tenth Amendments would be D- defenestrated,
0: disregarded, completely ignored, not, yep. un- totally unknown,
1: yeah. That's right. So, in f- trying to find a way to resurrect uh, uh, some sort of subsidiarity rule, which com- comes out of the Catholic tradition, the idea does, but is, is basically like let things be decided at the most local feasible level. You can get as close as possible to anarchy without ever really getting there. Sometimes I call myself jokingly an asymptotic anarchist because an you ass have the- what. <laughs> Asymptotic anarchist. It's a it's a fancy word. So an asymptote, and, and I'm not a mathematician, by the way. So I um, I'm using this metaphorically. But an asymptote is a curve that approaches a line, like an axis, and never actually gets there. Right in mathematics, it's the same kind of idea, like Zeno's paradoxes. You, um, people people constantly, among libertarians particularly, argue over these ideas. We're going to have a minimal state, and it has to do this and that certain kind of thing. Ayn Rand says so, you know, or, <laughs> okay. you know, Hans Hermann Hoppe
0: told me that I had to believe this.
1: Exactly, right. exactly. Hans Her- Her- Hermann Hoppe says it looks like this and this is what we need to instantiate. Or, um, you know, um, the anarchist is like, we shouldn't have any government at all because that opens the door to this and that and the other. And I'm like, I agree with the anarchist that that political power is fundamentally unjust. Michael Humer's book, uh, the, the Problem of Political Authority is really good in this regard. But we can. We're never going to have a Michael Humer moment, unless we're like coming out of some state of warlordism. But even then, you're going to have to have a powerful some sort of force to um, to protect you in, in a condition to to instantiate whatever your your utopia is. And so, <clears throat> I've been more influenced by speaking of utopia, um, this guy Robert Nozick, who is a, a philosopher who died in. The, uh, like 1999, 2000, I think. Um, who um, had this great book called Anarchy, State, and Utopia? And he, in the third chapter of this, which is not the most famous chapter, but in the third chapter, he talks about a framework for utopias or a utopia of utopias. And that that little that little joke, that little th- thing he's talking about, is just basically saying, "Hey, there ain't no such thing as utopia. We've got to have as many." as many experiments as possible that people can opt into and try out and leave it if they don't work or leave or reduce the costs of exiting a jurisdiction that isn't serving their, their, their conception of the good. And that really, that has, that has stayed with me for a long time from my philosophy background. And now I'm like, okay, let's try to find creative ways to get people to think along these lines because if we don't try to shove the one true way down everybody's throats, we don't have to go to war against each other. We don't have to start engaging in this uh, this social media civil war that we're already in right now, or electoral politics governs uh, everything. So in- wait,
0: you're saying I could just delete my app and not participate in the culture wars?
1: oh in the culture war yeah I mean yeah no 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 that's a that that that, that I forgot that this uh, we started off talking you, you had wanted to ask about the I do think there's war, an so element of
0: like you're you have no idea how much you're being catechized by what you're seeing every two minutes out of five on Facebook and you can just go read Nozick or hoppa or you can't just Eddie. go read
1: nozick yeah, it is a little bit of right, work right um but you can so let, not... let me let me let me go to the th- question of culture yeah. um please please i don't want to interrupt the, the no but i think thing.
0: that's that's kind of where the 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 thinking is going it's less about how to f- what government to shape under but how am i going to sort myself in with people that i just there's there's no uh there's no ability for me to go to sc- send my kids to school with someone who Um, believes that there should be trans story hour, right? Like, that's sort of the the prevailing thought of the moment, that we just can't, we can't have a pluralistic society because the the differences are just too irreconcilable and we need to completely dissolve the union and, and, I don't know, send the liberals to Philadelphia and the conservatives to Indianapolis.
1: Well, there's a lot of that going on in Canada, but I haven't heard anybody suggest that we invade Canada. You have not been listening um, to this
0: show. That's been a that's oh really been a strong theme of this show for eleven years. But no, go yeah, <laughs> invade go, Canada. Yeah, so I'm well, all there, for are, it. There,
1: there. There are a lot of jurisdictions around the world where w- they ha- who participate in what we might call deal breakers, right? Um, who have policies that are beyond the pale to us. <clears throat> and again, what's beyond the pale to one person might not be beyond the pale to the next. My my sense is. We've got to, in some sense, uh, protect basic rights. There has to be some concept of, you know, um, of an individual right. Um, The Bill of Rights enumerates many of these. But basically that we we create a condition where it's it it is um, it is illegitimate and and by which by which I mean illegal to make someone uh, worse off um, who is innocent. OK, that is a that is a pretty basic, basic to liberal doctrine or libertarian doctrine. Um, now, there might be deal breakers in what are the status of children? What is the status of the unborn? All of these kind of things like this. Um, the current the status quo on that currently after the Supreme Court decision, for example, with abortion is um, do it states do it states. I would say go even lower in terms of jurisdictions. Uh, If we're talking about terra firma so that um, so that you can carve out more spaces for people who, you know, because I very much understand both sides personally of the abortion debate. I understand both sides and and both sides make very, very important claims. And they indeed seem to be irreconcilable. But short of war. Uh, over these these deal breakers, these ir- irreconcilable issues, maybe even then we want to have a uh, subsidiarity rule and have smaller jurisdictions such that um, that uh, you you can avoid civil war. Now, very quickly, I want to go back to the question of culture, um, because in, in this conversations, it's like, Max, what you're doing is all very theoretical and abstract, you know. Um, and, you know, you're trying to teach people this, what the benefits of civil uh, decentralization would be in, in Switzerland, for example, the Canton has more a, as much authority as the federal government. So cantons are uh, able to set most of the rules for that particular region in Switzerland. The federal government uh, is more of a, a confederation. In fact, it used to be called the Swiss Confederacy. It may still be. But um but there is a a, a balance a un- between unity and diversity in Switzerland that has held together for a long time. And they're generally known as peaceful people. They don't go to war with their neighbors and they don't go to war with each other. Not, not really um, COVID. There was, there were some problems because they were trying to institute a lot of uh, COVID, you know, vaccine mandates and things like that. And the Swiss are not all of this was like their freedom. They like their neutrality. But um, as a, as a, An exemplar, I think Switzerland does a very good job of what the founders of the American Republic were hoping to achieve with the Canton system, uh, with federalism in the United States. And uh, as we've already said, the Ninth and Tenth Amendment has been shredded, gutted, whatever metaphor you like, that therefore we need to do something else. And I I have a lot of people who are like, well, you're going to have to build culture around this idea. So the way I try to do that is appeal to their patriotism. Go back and read the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> if you have any any le- any patriotism left in you, cultural patriotism, that is beyond just I like my country and I like this flag. That's not enough. Like there, there's got to be some intellectual content to the patriotism. And the Declaration of Independence has this really important thing about rights to light, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But the very most important part of it was that those rights, um. If if a government does not instantiate those rights, then people have a right to tear down and reconstitute the government. And the consent of the governed is the key piece there. That's why I call the book, uh, the, the subtitle of the book, uh, Jefferson's Dangerous Idea. That is his dangerous idea, is the idea of opt-in governance, of smaller jurisdictions where, where you can – where you can go into uh, where you would be legally able to break off from a jurisdiction that isn't working to start with others, some other jurisdiction or even perhaps, and this is something that Jefferson might not have been able to imagine, but governance in the cloud where you can choose from a menu of legal options that are, that exist in the cloud, the digital cloud. Mm -hmm. I'll leave that for the moment.
0: Do you go, do you walk through that in the book, how that would, how that would work?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's a a guy, um, and this predates um, the third part of Anarchy, State, and Utopia by um, I don't know, long time, hundred years, hundred something years. Um, this Belgian guy named Paul Emile Dupuy, I think, I think is the way you pronounce it. Um, I can't, I don't know if that's Belgian or French. Uh, I mean, uh,
0: it all flows. Uh, down, you uh, know. I, was,
1: uh, I don't know if he he's Belgian, but I don't know if it's the French influence to the name or the the Dutch, but. Um, The idea is is called panarchy, okay, and the suggestion from Dupuit is this: Imagine you could just opt into that. You instead of joining the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, the Libertarian Party, the Green Party, you could sign up for their governance services Hmm. and live by their auspices. Now, you might have a local jurisdiction that dictated stuff about you know local schools and traffic lights and parking meters and this and that, that we all know are in towns and they may even want to have, you know, some kind of little social welfare system at the most local feasible level. Um, But the idea is with a a subsidiary, uh, not just a subsidiarity rule, but that you could choose your governance structure. And you might couple that with a, uh, with a federalism rule. Um, But that you would join, instead of joining a party that you would try to get that party elected to hold sway over the, to essentially from top
0: down force those values on other people who don't necessarily reflect those values.
1: Yes. That would be illegal. Right. That would be illegal under this system, under this kind of constitution. That's exactly right. And, um, and so you would, if there are people in the County over who are very, you know, who are part of a, an Israeli style kibbutz, they share everything in common. They live in an intentional community. They're all super. They can live and die by that system, and that's okay. Um, and maybe your conception of the good is plucked in a panarchist system. There are other intentional communities that attach to that superordinate governance structure. Um, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but like, it's exactly how we use social media now. And that's promising to me. You know these tech examples. I keep coming back to these tech examples about your smartphone or whatever, and having options and opting into different kind of systems. Um, it it uh, you don't have to go to war with your neighbor. You just have to you, you'd either have to move or take them to court. Because the tweet says, after you've uh, subscribed to your chosen system and live under its laws, it might include a heavy taxes. It might not. But after you opt into your chosen governance system, you then, um, if, there are, if there are disputes between and among jurisdictions, that goes to common law courts. And that is, I think, how you resolve some of these things. And then you can create settled law based on the common law.
0: We have, in the History of Modern Politics podcast that I do with my friend Matt Whitliffe. Barely dived into common law versus statutory law we in america don't live under the common law
1: we live under i don 't know what uh, <laughs> we, we, we have a we have a hybrid structure we do have yeah. some some common law, but statutes are uh, gobbling up everything
0: yeah. yeah right where we refer back to case law as opposed to look this is just the values of the of the society so h- how do you envision Moving forward, like, talk to me about Underthrow and how we start to and the contest, uh, plug the contest, oh, because yeah. I think Thank that you. that certainly plays into this. But like, if you've given the German idea, like we've started with, all right, maybe you could be open to a different idea. Here's the idea that we're suggesting Now, let's get to the hard part, because like with the Constitution, for instance, one thing I love about the book, and one thing I could not agree with you more as I become sort of obsessed with the American Revolution and the idea of it, it was so revolutionary for its time, and Americans have completely lost sight of this, where you didn't have the son of a king, who's the son of a king sort of being the, you know, the voice of God, you know, uh, Peter II of Spain saying, don't get these two confused because it's the same thing um, in the 1500s. Like, you, uh, uh, Pedro, not Peter, um, excuse me, but you you had the founders coming along and saying, we're going to disperse power, decentralize it amongst the states And let them choose. I don't think there's anything unreasonable about your idea of, let's say, abortion. Why can't a state legislator walk up and say, we're going to let counties in Indiana decide how they apply abortion law? The state government wants to have the authority of that. Now we're talking about Mike Pence and Kamala Harris arguing over the federal government and and trying to force those values. Um, So... When they sat down to write the Constitution and, you know, revise the Articles of Confederation and determine a scheme for the government and have the arguments, like, through the federal and anti-federalist papers, um, the, there was a lot of negotiation, right? So, slavery mm-hmm. always is brought up. Hypocrisy is woven into the f- fabric of the American Republic, not just slavery, right? Uh, the thing about hypocrisy is that you have two ideas that are one's good and one's bad, right? In Jefferson, the ideas of natural, the natural rights tradition and every man is equal and all the values he expressed, he did not embody them, but it doesn't mean that those values are wrong, right? But when that you are trying to apply those, you couldn't get the constitution passed without negotiations, but they all acknowledged they had set up a time bomb, right? So the idea of updating the software of governance how do you move forward uh, when you actually start to have the rubber meet the road in a second founding, or as Glenn Beck there for a while called it, the refounding?
1: That is a beautiful question. That is, um, and that is the most daunting aspect of this for me. So first, let me talk about the Constitution of Consent contest, because that was in there a little bit. And then I'll, then I'll tell you, then I'll answer the part about uh, the latter part, the constitution of consent contest. If you, uh, if your listeners will go to underthrow.org, um, underthrow being the name of the book as well. Yeah, it's probably confusing, but underthrow.org, uh, you'll in the, in the nav bar, there's the thing that says contest that contest, uh, we're offering $25,000, uh, $25,000, $20,000 first prize. $3,000 second prize and $2,000 third prize for the team or individual who can uh, come up with the best constitution of consent, where consent is riffing on Jefferson's dangerous idea, that of the consent of the governed. Um, all the hardcore libertarians out there who like Lysander Spooner will, will like the fact that you actually have to sign this, declar- this uh sorry, this uh, constitution and um we i think jefferson would agree jefferson was worried about the sophistry of the of the general welfare clause and others and so also was um, the or the anti-federalists who opposed it in fact robert Yates of new york walked out of the constitutional convention cuz he saw that they were going to create an imperial monster and boy was he right it happened new york, york did not
0: sign it and new york's ob- objections largely were right
1: that's right and the other new yorker Uh, Hamilton, uh, was the one who ended up winning the day and winning the argument. And he, frankly, was responsible in great measure for ruining the country and giving us the the shit show we have today. Excuse my mouth. But, um, Jefferson, um, you know, and so people are going to, people might confuse me for saying that I don't venerate the constitution. I think it was a, a brilliant, brilliant document. It did something to the world. It, it created a, a situation that, um, that changed the world in, in, in a great many ways to positive effect. I admire it deeply, and I think that there are features of it that must be copied personally. So when I invite people to enter this contest, it's like, how would you improve on the old Constitution? What would you keep? What would you scrap? How would you institute this, this idea of self, right of self-determination for jurisdiction? Right. So if 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 this um, northwest, I think it's Washington or Oregon, sorry, northeast Washington or northeast Oregon wants to break off and join Idaho. They can do that. That's their prerogative. Um, Where those kind of features are built into it, where there's no question about the legality of the right of self-determination and that individual people can be signatories to this. So at the macro level, it's like, yes, I want to participate in this, and this is my chosen body of law. <clears throat> and, of course, it would build in the common law and, and not privileged statute law. I'm aware of the irony that a constitution is a form of statute. But otherwise, judicial supremacy, you know, you resolve your disputes among between and among jurisdictions, between and among, among people in common law courts. This is the way you make – you have – Hayekian and bottom-up law, spontaneous order kind of law. Um, so now, how do you how do you get people? And, and the, this gets to the question about <clears throat> how you get people thinking along these lines or appreciating this, because most people are kind of trapped in kind of status quo thinking. Geographical it's like,
0: well, we boundaries. To- it's it's it's. I'm listening to you going. Well, how does that work? If I, you know, how does Miss Kim and the Mohammeds and Donna, next, how do we all have different governments? That just doesn't make sense to me. They live next door to me.
1: Well, you're going to have different governments, right? You're going to have a local government that's going to going to have, uh, you know, resolve questions on certain things, like maybe parks and roads and uh, drug policy, right? You know, they might have a red light district, but that's it. Or they might have, you know, completely drug-free zone or something like that. Um, and you're going to have to figure out where in the governance stack that goes. So the idea is you're going to have multiple jurisdictions, but the federal jurisdiction is going to only be responsible for ensuring that no single jurisdiction gets too big and has control over everybody else. So that that one true way of getting shoved down everybody's throat problem gets solved. Um, now, the, the, here, here's how it would work. I, I see what you're asking now. I was interpreting you in a different way, and I'm going to try to answer both ways. Think about um, right now, we, um, you and I see each other on Facebook all the time. I happen to see you all the time. You've got a pretty family you're building. Thank you. And um, and uh, every once in a while, I'll put pictures of my, my kids on there. I hope you see those. Um, and we can join Facebook groups right? We can join all kinds of things just on Facebook. If Facebook, we considered our, uh, our social operating system, there's all manner of things that we can join in or, or, you know, get out of in Facebook. If you use that as a rough metaphor for what I'm describing, you would be able to, there are certain things that are going to have spillover effects for communities. So, you might have uh, stronger drug prohibition laws, or or whatever, in a in a jurisdiction, um, and you're going to have to have people fighting in courts over whether and to what extent they can defend themselves for Second Amendment, which some people see as very basic right. Um, but the idea of governance pluralism would be it. It seems arbitrary that I can have a say over how people. I'm in South Carolina right now. How you in Indiana? ought to have to live but I don't have any say of how people in Mexico or Canada live even though I'm closer to Mexico perhaps than you I don't know that to be the case when I was in Texas I definitely was
0: yeah I see what you're saying the- you know what what's the it's all sort of phony baloney anyways the geographic boundaries so right we right. we already have in the internet age means of governing you know I I, I manage a lot of uh, big brands right and large facebook groups and we have rules that we have set on how we interact with each other and how we're going to do deals and there's professional ethics for instance you know uh or you know hollywood has a totally different set of professional ethics than lawyers do you know have you ever talked to a lawyer Uh, talking to a lawyer i had to do it yesterday nice guy he he's a phenomenal human being but they will commit to nothing (laughs) because of (laughs) ethics, right? Like they will, they will not give you an, an doctors are the same way just because ethics, uh, you know, being in the media, I have a certain philosophical approach to how I treat other people or use these platforms and other people choose different ways. Right. But I I have my set of ethics, right? So is that sort of what you're saying where, look, we already have all these instances where we have, in the digital age created these different sets of ethics in which we govern ourselves. Why not start to implement that?
1: Right. I, I, you know, I know a bunch of people who don't live in Delaware, but incorporate in Delaware because they have a body, they have a body of business law that extends back really far and it's, it's good quality law. People like Delaware's business law. So they incorporate in Delaware. It's low tax. It's this, it's that, um, you know, um, there are, uh, for example, in Estonia, Estonia has e ego, e-go uh, e-residency. You can become a resident of Estonia without actually having, having to live there. And you incorporate in Estonia and you enjoy their low tax environment. You enjoy their, whatever aspects of their legal code they're proud of. And they think that, you know, and if you're living in an African nation where, um, the, the, the bureaucracy is thick and the regulations are so strong that that it makes it virtually impossible for you to create a business in that jurisdiction. You might want to pluck from a menu of uh, options. Also there's international law governing business between and among multinational corporations that hold sway all the time. And you, you know, you, when you do business with someone, you agree to do an arbitration agreement, right? Where you agree to go to a, a common arbiter uh certain Yeah, I think I,
0: I think this makes a lot of a lot more sense than just anarchy, right? So like anarchists will kind of run around and go, well there just should be no laws. And that just doesn't work for people but because uh what, I have to pay somebody the, to the, do my trash and I've got to hire a lawyer. Right. It just it's whereas if you adopt a, a set of governing codes around, look, we generally agree with the principles of this set of constitutional rules around marriage and business and x y and z right uh maybe you can articulate what would be kind of covered under these governing operating systems uh it's a much more clean understandable acceptable form of governance for people because just saying there should be no government is just sort of overwhelming i think to people
1: yeah. And, and look, this I think one could argue that what I'm after is a species of anarchy. Um, anarchy, I think, properly construed is rules without rulers, right? And if you have people who really want to be ruled or really, you know, um, really want uh, a certain kind of governance structure that has an administrative hierarchy, that's really hard to argue with, Um except till it extends to the entire country and that's and that's where it become the costs of escaping that jurisdiction become inordinately high that's what we're trying to avoid so yeah this is just sort of like this is sort of like a pragmatic way of looking at anarchy as rules without rulers because if you can easily move to another jurisdiction or to another body of law after the the subscription period elapses, I can choose another body of law. And then if there's any disputes between the jurisdiction, it goes to court. That body of law might live in the cloud as well. Common law does, you know, English common law, you had, you know, the law books were um, applied anywhere they needed to. If that makes sense. Um, There's a whole great tradition of emergent law called the Lex Mercatoria, which just means the merchant law. Um, all across the Silk Road, people used this law to, to to do what they needed to do in the Middle Ages, and it was a flourishing center centers of activity that allowed you know they that allowed people to trade trade and have commercial relationships, even though they all, weren't all from the same nation state. Yeah, So
0: yeah. no, so instead of um, someone coming in and imposing a set of COVID restrictions on me, right, uh, you would have a situation where, look, we have this disagreement, what set of laws can we go and access that we can both agree, let's mediate these rules, as opposed to someone coming in heavy handedly and saying, this is how you're going to do it, and if you don't, I'm going to bankrupt you or jail you. Versus the Silk Road example of like the, the peasant in the middle of, you know, what is now Germany had no need necessarily of those laws. They had a different set of needs of laws for how to deal with an oppressive lord who was stealing 50% of what they made. They don't need the Silk Road law. They need a different set of laws. And so let's, right. let's govern ourselves under these laws based on need as opposed to force.
1: And you got the Magna Carta. You already had um, you already had the um, uh, English common law when you got the Magna Carta. You know, these emergent forms of law have always been with us. It's really the Romans who (laughs) ruined everything with statute, the Justinian law. Um, And yeah, they had their legislative bodies and their deliberative bodies, you know, the Senate and so on. But um, it's this idea of sort of statutes holding sway over great swaths of territory to be administered by governors or satraps or whatever, that um, uh, the influence of Rome persists today. And it's not to say that everything about Rome was bad. It's not. I mean, there were some amazing things that Romans were able to achieve, but they did a lot of it through you know, imperialism and conquest, even, you know, even as the Republic, the, the um, people underestimate the degree to which the English common law is a superior form of law, in my opinion. Um, Notwithstanding my, my uh, idea that it should start with a, with a constitution, which is a statute. Well, one thing, and and this is kind of my final. (laughs) Actually, actually, no, it's not. In this situation, it's a multilateral contract and that is the difference. It is something you sign and agree to live to. And that's the difference. So how would
0: you deal with somebody that doesn't, you don't agree on what laws, what constitution to adopt or what set of laws? How, how would you, you know, deal with that where I'm living in my landlord's house and look, he just decides That's sort of always been my hang up on anarchy, right? Like I, I agree to use this court and he agrees to use that court. And well, we just can't agree on court. So I'm going to just take your stuff, right? They have more power, than I have because they have more capital, uh, I could see that possibly being a breakdown in the system. How would you answer that?
1: Yeah, I think you're going to start to see um, all sorts of uh, all sorts of things that spring up around this in terms of um, um, uh, you know uh, insurance structures and things that you know it's like if you get th- th- an economist can map this out for us, but basically, conflict is costly. Right. And um, a lot of things you might do if you were if we were to opt, uh, a bunch of us were to opt into this constitution, but others not. It's sort of like dis- disputes that you might have with someone who's from Mexico or someone who's from Canada. You know, there has that has to be reconciled in some way. International conflicts happen all the time and are reconciled and they're not reconciled at the U.N. They're usually um, done through arbitration court. I think whatever. that's a good
0: point. So you, you have Belarusian agreements where, you know, in the past Ukraine and Russia or the United States and Russia have had to meet in Belarus and hammer out an agreement through arbitrators. And so, yes, while it would be annoying that you would have to have arbitration, you'd have to have mediation, you'd have a lot less government force in your life. You would just have sort of like divorce, right? Like it. Nobody goes into marriage thinking they're going to get divorced, but when it goes wrong, you have a a system for dealing how to, and nobody ever comes out totally happy, but at least it's somewhat fair for for some folks. The the final thing that I wanted to bring up- And there there are different
1: laws in different states, by the way. Yeah. Right? So, you know, with a subsidiarity rule, and I would encourage people who want to enter the Constitution of Consent contest to consider a, a subsidiarity rule, which is- all, law, all, all decisions must be made at the most local feasible level. If an age of consent law, for example, applies uh, if you're, I don't know what it is, 16 in South Carolina, let's say in North Carolina, it's 17 or 18. I don't know. I just don't know. I'm from North Carolina, but I don't know.
0: As a libertarian, um, I feel like that's like where we all, <laughs> you become libertarian long enough, you're like, well, and then it comes down to AOC.
1: To, to AOC? Age of consent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so like if um, I get – if I um, am an 18-year-old with my 16-year-old girlfriend in South Carolina, then I'm okay. But if I get caught in, in the steamy back of the car with my 16-year-old girlfriend in the state that has a 17-year-old age of consent, I might get arrested right. for statutory, statutory rape. And if the law accrues to that jurisdiction – Right. As part of a subsidiarity rule, then. I, I might not have any cover. By the Constitution, you see what I mean? Yeah, uh, by the, di- the different because the, the Constitution is going to be restricted at the high at the federal level to very few, very few things. Um, and age of consent laws might not be one of those. Uh, just like legal codes with resor- regarding how you can build your house and what you can build, you know, put in your yard. If you're a member of a homeowners association and you live n- next to someone who's not, and they have yard cars, what is your recourse? Right, we have these kind of situations all the time already, and they have to be uh, they have to be resolved in courts. Uh, interstate conflicts with different sets of laws and so on. There are interstate uh, conflicts as well because people do business across state lines all the time. Our constitution does do a little around this, but um, but the long and short of it is there are going to be a lot of ways where you have these secondary markets to ensure that, that you have protections. And that sounds like a very David Friedman kind of thing. I don't know if you follow David Friedman. Yeah. He's he is an anarchist, but he's one of these rules, rules without rulers guys. In other words, you, um, there are strong incentives for you to mitigate conflict by, um, making sure that you have some kind of, uh, legal insurance, or you're part of a protective association in which that is bundled in as part of your membership dues. There can be all kinds of ways that these things can spring up. It depends on what kind of body of law you have. And I'm not prescribing any anything. I've given a set of guidelines, a basic outline of the kind of things I want to see. But part of this contest, this constitution of consent contest, is that they're going to be all kinds of creative. Again, this goes back to the idea of creativity, entrepreneurship, creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship, that you can have legal innovations too. We want to discover these through this contest. Somebody might think of the thing that's something that we've never thought of, and that could be instantiated into law. And then we build culture around that. So really quickly, Chris, and I don't mean to just blather on, but no, like um, that's what we this, do here. I, well, well, yeah, but you got a lot of questions, I'm sure. Um, this idea of building culture around something, this this guy who's been, Balaji Srinivasan, has been on the, uh, the the major podcast scene for a long time. You know, Tim Ferriss, I think he was on for, Tim Ferriss for four hours, Lex Fridman for like <laughs> 19. seven hours I know, or something.
0: I can't imagine. I, I feel bad keeping you for over the 30 minutes I agreed to.
1: <laughs> oh man. I, I, I was expecting an hour. So this okay. is fine. All right, we good. Can all right. Whenever you want. But, right. um, but the idea is, for Balaji Srinivasan is that people will, um, will gather around a moral political order in the cloud, in the digital cloud. And so if I can, you and I, and a whole bunch of other interesting people all around the world, and believe me, they're everywhere. um, can coalesce around something that is an, that is an artifact of our reverence like the constitution that embodies our values. That's really um, the way this starts. We build a culture amongst ourselves. And in fact, I would like to see that, that, that community form and be robust. Eventually you can start to have the, the, the ideas and the community descend down to whatever jurisdictions that it can find a toehold in. So for example, right now in Honduras, there's the Zedes laws. You can, you can, um, certain Zedes have like patches of soil within Honduras where, um, they have created a, a jurisdiction called Prospera, which is one of the freest zones the world has ever seen. And it's only existed for, I don't know less than a decade and they're starting to get business formation there. They're starting to get all kinds of things happening that if you can, if you just come down to earth in one jurisdiction, you know, um, this constitution of consent is designed to spawn subsidiary jurisdictions, but connect back up to a large, to a, a body of law that, that protects certain kinds of basic things. But, the constitution of consent is designed very much like open source so that you can fork it and change it to your heart's content. And certain people want to live under this body of law. And it was like, no, we absolutely have to have an abortion provision in our constitution. So they fork it and they add the abortion prevention. And suddenly you have two sets, two constitutions of consent, one of which is with the abortion provision. One is without, you see what I mean? Yeah. So, um, but it, but the whole idea is this is global, a global phenomenon without being globalist, right. because it's not meant to instantiate any kind of centralized authority. It's precisely the opposite. It could be a, called a constitution of decentralization.
0: Yeah, I see why you invoke Jefferson. Um, I love that you used the founders and their and their ideology because I think that's just such a deep core part of American culture. American Mm -hmm. thinking, American education, that you can't really have a reformation or an evolution without talking about the founders. Uh, So I thought that that part was exceptionally, but I mean, you really seem to have encapsulated in the 21st century, the way that Jefferson thought about how it ought to operate his skepticism around the constitution. Uh, So I really appreciate that piece. I want, uh, I want to end with a different question, but before we move on to that final question, uh, finish self-promoting, plugging the uh, contest. You know, if I enter this contest, you can win like 20 grand if you win, right? Like, so it's Absolutely. a significant contest. Where can I find details? Give me a couple other details uh, before we move on to a different
1: topic. Thank you, thank you. Um, I would encourage everybody to go to underthrow.org. It's a substack. Um, that's my substack. You can sign up for free. You can also sign up to buy me a cup of coffee every month, and that is most welcome. We'll use those resources to, to further promote the Constitution of Consent Contest and these ideas, these, the, the, these fairly radical, um, radical ideas about uh, how, to, how to create a social order that makes everybody as free as possible but still united under the banner of broad liberalism. Right. Um, So underthrow.org, you come there, you'll get treated to um, a a lot of different voices, mostly mine, but also some others who people who think along these lines and in this vein, they're very uh, libertarian informed. So they won't be disappointed if your listeners are libertarian. And um, you go to the NAB bar and click on Contest that is the con that'll give you the entire contest page. You can see the rules, but also the guidelines, the kind of things that we're looking for as judges. Um, and yeah, I would encourage everybody to think creatively about how to create a new constitution that achieves these kind of things as well as gives you an opportunity to win $20,000. Who could, who couldn't use that now, even though the dollars, um, purchasing power. <laughs> That's more still a lot of money. That's still, still a
0: really money. good amount of money. Uh, and the book is Underthrow, How Jefferson's Dangerous Ideal Will Spark a New Revolution. I'll put links to both of those things in the show notes. You're a very smart guy mm-hmm. who seems to think differently and access very smart and uh, bright people that are coming up with new ideas. I had not heard of, like, the Honduras Prosperous, right? Some of us are still woefully stuck in Politico and uh, politicalwire.com and things like that, right? Um, I'm interested in, you know, uh, out, uh, having you outline your media diet. How What do you read? Where do you find your books? What websites do you visit for news? If you even look at news, like, like if I were, uh, you know, we're starting Chris Spangle University, and I'm hiring you to teach people how to think critically, think differently about philosophical topics and um, a conception of the future. Where would I start?
1: Where would you start outlining in your course? Hmm. Let's see. I, I read my, my, my consumption diet is, uh, is often just what other people find interesting that has an interesting title when I click on it. So I have to be very, very honest in saying that's probably 50% of what I consume and, and podcasts recently. Um, I have a, I have a ton of books and things that I, that I, from the past and things that I like to read today. Um, they make fun of me uh my last name is Borders and there used to be a Borders books and music and my my office is just a bunch of books and, <laughs> and so you know I'm Borders the whole, the book book order but um as far as uh, things I like to read believe it or not I like to read what I call dissident leftists okay those are people like Matt Tiabi, um Michael Schellenberger Glenn Greenwald those i start I, I often start with those guys because they're doing the they're doing a better job of of really critiquing the authoritarian left than the libertarians are doing i, I kind of get the sense that the mainstream libertarians are trying too hard to maintain this kind of this kind of neutrality um this kind of dispassionate or or sort of i don't know detached view uh, in what they 're doing, or they try to uh, maybe call spades spades uh, with everybody without without just every once in a while going okay these these folks have a point." whereas the dissident leftists um, are really, really interesting in their critiques of their own kind because they see the illiberal nature of the, the way the left is trending right now, and I think they 're right um, I also like reading really interesting right right leaning people. And right now, I'm not mentioning any libertarians that I'm reading right. So people yeah, like just uh, not, Paul,
0: there's there. I was looking at that list that I kept on LibertyExplain dot com. Those websites aren't being updated. The organizations aren't as active. The people people have kind of moved on. There's there's a there's a hollowing out, I think, of kind of where the intellectual class of the libertarian movement was maybe a decade ago. And I do agree with you. I tend to like people who are criticizing their own in-group. I think that's far more interesting than somebody who is in the out-group. Like, the Daily Wire Mm -hmm. constantly criticizing leftists or the New York Times calling everything far-right. Like, to me, that's not as interesting as maybe somebody who's in the tribe kind of going, I understand my people, and I think this is a, a problematic thing, and here's why we think that, and here's why I think, you know... I tend to agree with you on on first the outgroup in group criticism, and then also not a lot of libertarian stuff out there that's as not like it was right. I, don't I know mean, there really
1: it's, there are libertarian adjacent things like uh, Astral Star Codex, which is uh, uh, Scott a Alexan- Scott Alexander's uh, work, and that's a pseudonym. Um, there is, um, uh, you know, people like. Even, even some of the sort of the dark enlightenment people like Curtis Yarvin, like I checked that stuff out. I, I did a big critique piece of Curtis Yarvin um, in Quillette, but that doesn't mean that that I'm not still interested in what he has to say because he has freakishly, he guy's freakishly smart. Um, on the right and also a recent convert to the right is this guy named um, uh, an English fellow who lives in Ireland who's a deep traditionalist who is converted recently to Orthodox Christianity. He's got some really interesting ideas from the perspective of a newly converted Christian conservative. Um, his name's Paul Kings North. I like to read him. I like to read uh, just some of the heterodox stuff like Unheard. They've got some really great writers, the free press, which is kind of like a centrist heterodox thing that, um, the former uh, opinion editor of the New York Times started Barry Weiss, um, and she's also a, considered a dissident now because she was unwilling to toe the party line, and she wanted to have a, an editorial page that represented a lot of different views. And the you know the the wokeys at the New York Times basically tr- tried to run her off, and essentially uh, succeeded. But she's doing really interesting stuff now on her own terms. Um, at you know people like. Um, um, gosh, now, now I'm, I just had it in my mind, and now I give, give me last. some
0: books. Like, if you were there, are some foundational books that like people wanted to start wading into the political philosophy that you're into, what are like three to five titles that you'd say, Look, this I think these were foundational, and you should definitely check them out? They stand the test of time.
1: Okay, uh, that's that's an easy one. I would do, um Two Cheers for Anarchy by James C. Scott. I would do uh, Anarchy, State, and Utopia by uh, Robert Nozick. I would do The Social Singularity by Max Borders. Obviously, because that's really a distillation of a lot of a lot of my influences and ideas. Um, I would say um, um, the the recent works of Matt Ridley. I really like Matt Ridley. I like the way he thinks about uh, economics and technology. And I would say um, the Bourgeois series from um,
0: Deirdre McCloskey. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, her yeah. book on liberalism I thought was excellent too. Uh, it's probably a little more of an introductory read in, in defending the concept of liberalism um, as well. I have not read the Bourgeois series, but I did. I did like oh. Um, her her case for liberalism.
1: Yeah, there's two more. Two more. I'd say The Sovereign Individual by two authors, um, Reese Mogg and the, the other author's name escapes me, um, and The Network State by Balaji Srinivasan, which is a, a recent book. James Dale Davidson. Yes. Thank w- you. What was the last one? I'm writing these down. <laughs> uh, yeah, The Network State by Balaji Srinivasan. All right, cool.
0: Uh, all right, let's uh, let's end there. Uh, I thought uh, you've been more than generous with your time. Thank you so much. Uh, highly, highly recommend Underthrow by Max Borders. Go check all of his books. All the titles of all your books uh, seem really interesting, and I'll read um, the uh, what was the one that you mentioned. I'll read that one next.
1: The Social Singularity. All yeah, right. that's that's my most popular book, and you know I have to acknowledge it. For some reason, that flew off the sh- shelves. And um, uh, or the, the the virtual shelves because people you know find it in Amazon. I own this, and okay, uh, yeah,
0: it's six bucks, and uh, it's on Kindle Unlimited, so there's no reason not to. Come on, people.
1: Yeah, and then um, and then Underthrow. Yeah, I, I could really use the the algorithmic lift on that one. Yeah, and I, if you if I, you have any listeners that are that are broke and just and want it, I'll send you the ebook for free.
0: <laughs> don't say that. No, don't be a freeloader. It's, no, <laughs> buy the book. Well, this audience you, has plenty of
1: money, Max. I trust me, ra- these are ra- not
0: poor libertarians. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. That's right. great.
1: So now we're not giving. But you, I, if you if you've got a college kid out there who, who's broke, I'm happy to send them. There a book we go. Because they rate it, rate it on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. All
0: right. Thanks so much, Max. I really appreciate it. Oh, likewise, Chris. It was a delight. Thanks so much for joining me here on the Chris Spangle Show. If you got something out of this, please share it. That's the best, really the only way that podcasts and content creators like Max and I can grow in what we do. That is the best way to support us. Second is throw in a couple bucks on Patreon or, you know, his Substack and make sure you buy his books. And it's really important to support creators that you find interesting. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Chris Spangle Show.